first of all, now finance come up, comes up front at every board meeting. But we have regular meetings with Vista. Nick meets with Vista weekly. Every other week, the entire executive team joins. And the other exec that they meet with weekly is CFO. And since we are meeting with them regularly, and we're usually talking about different strategic topics on the CEO call, CFO calls, and we're like just a regular sort of update. I, we needed to align, actually, even more. Hey, Alka, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Hey, I want to kick off and understand a little more about you. What are some of the most memorable moments in your personal life that shaped your career in tech? To answer that question, we're going to have to go way back. We're going to have to go way back to my parents uh, who are immigrants. They came from India in the 70s. Dad had a PhD in engineering, and they'd heard about this place called Silicon Valley. And so really through sheer luck, or I like to think like destiny, well, my parents settled in the Bay Area back in the 70s. And then after some time, I was born and my brother was born. And so dad was you know, one of the kind of the early pioneers in the semiconductor industry and, and stayed in the semiconductor industry for many years thereafter. But I think just being in the Bay Area and being around all that tech and eventually I had a lot of family who moved over here as well. I think just set the stage for me to enter the tech industry. I still remember the day like when my dad came home and he brought me a chip around like a semiconductor chip. And I just thought it was so cool. But I think like more than that, I think being in an environment like this, my, my uncle's an entrepreneur, for example, I think you just start dreaming big. And, and we never, I don't think any of us thought Silicon Valley was going to be what it ended up becoming. But the early days, even in my early days of the career, Silicon Valley, we were like the rebels. Like Wall Street didn't pay attention to us. Nobody really paid attention to us. And it's been interesting for it to morph. So I think just being here, and now I was cut joke that I'm one of the unicorns because there's not many people who originally grew up in the Bay Area that are still here. It's mostly sort of transplants. But it's been a really interesting life just watching mm. the, the journey of this space and being part of it. So that was really the most instrumental part of my you know, career is really just mom and dad coming here and settling here. I think you should seriously set up like an OG Silicon Valley club. <laughs> uh, you can have like monthly meetings where you hang out. What, once in a while, I'll meet somebody in a meeting and we're like, oh, we found each other. Tell me where you went to high school. Tell me. <laughs> because most people have moved out. It probably was edgy, but in, in, a, in our own like nerdy kind of fun way, which I love. But it was also a little sleepy. I remember it was orchards, like it was like farmland for a long time. And of course, now it's just a, it's a bunch of buildings. But it's, yeah, it's changed significantly. Pretty awesome. So going from that and then having your name splash up in Times Square, like what did that mean yeah. for you? And more importantly, for the family? I'll say that was definitely one of my proudest moments for sure. I think, first of all, I, I think there's this myth of Silicon Valley that, you know, everyone, uh, I always use the example of WhatsApp, right? I think they, they were, what, three or four years mm -hmm. and sold for like $15 billion mm -hmm. or something like that. And that happens. Some people do win the lottery. But the reality of it is it's a very expensive place to live, first of all. And so most people are, yes, they get paid well, but their paycheck is basically going to rent and just the high cost of living here. And it takes some time to really build a career. 
And that was a very proud moment for me. It was a very proud moment for my family. I think they were a little bit in shock because they were always like, what what are you really working on? My dad's an engineer. My model is a business owner. And so they were just like, what are you working so hard for? But it was great. It was great validation. I don't need a ton of validation, but that was really great validation from the community of just putting in over 20 years of work. Um, And it was very interesting to see how much it meant to other people. The amount of calls that I got after that and the amount of messages, the one that I remember the most, and especially from women, I think it meant a lot, particularly to women. And I remember one message that I got in particular, and it was actually the wife of, of someone on my team. And she said, I have a daughter and I'm just like so proud that she can look up to people and women in particular that are C-level at multi-million dollar companies. And I'm so happy that she has a chance to even meet one. And it was just very sweet. Yeah. And it ended up being a very like touching moment and one that I will always treasure. And it, it was a little bit of a surprise too. So <laughs> I thought, I remember when they contacted me, I actually thought I was like, oh, it's spam. This is like a really unique <laughs> email to get my attention. Yeah. And then I realized that they were serious, that they wanted to celebrate it. And it was, it was really nice. That's amazing to hear. And did you actually pause and reflect at that moment in time? Did you go like, I think I, I've done a good job. I've made it or I'm a good daughter or anything along those lines? I wrote when I did post it, when I finally did post on my LinkedIn. And I said, I said, I remember as a little girl watching my father, as my immigrant father, mm. watching, seeing, and looking at the stock market and all these sorts of things. And never did I really think that little girl would be able to grow up and actually see her name in lights. So it was. I had just a moment because I was very busy. I just got promoted. But yeah, I recognized that it was very special. Then the feedback that I got from people and especially just how just the emotions that were coming out of people really reflected to me that it really was quite a big Mm. moment. Often it's a good question because I think sometimes we're so busy, we don't really recognize the wins and moving moving on to the next thing. So I appreciate the question, but I, whether I wanted to or not, people were reflecting to me that take a moment, I'll go just recognize what's going on. So, so very cool. I have a young daughter and I even showed it to her. So it will resonate with a bunch yeah. of people as you obviously go through your journey, but Coming back yeah. to you, quite keen to hear how was it that your father was an engineer, <laughs> your mom was a business owner, and then you turned out to be a VFO? Oh. How did that happen? Like I said, I grew up in a, in a rebellious environment, and I was a little <laughs> bit of a rebel myself. And so I said, I will do anything, but I will not be an engineer. I love you, Dad, but that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I knew that I wanted to be in the tech industry. I just wanted to take a different, and at the time... I wasn't really sure, but I knew that I was really good at numbers. There's that engineering background again. And I was interested in in business in in general. And so that's where I landed in economics. And I actually started my career in investment banking first. And that's great when you're younger. It's a lot of hours. Some people love it and will continue on. But for me, I knew it wasn't going to be like just even just for the lifestyle, like a lifelong choice. But then basically I went to business school after that. And really in business school, you get to now really understand lots of other disciplines that I just didn't have as much exposure to in ba- as, as a banker. You're at a certain point of a company's life cycle. And so that's when I really decided that I was like, okay, I think I, I, I still want to do numbers. And I started off in biz ops and then landed 
an FPNA, and she wasn't sure. The FPNA job was the one that I was like, I don't know. It was like 2009. We thought we were going into the Great Depression, and it was a really good job. And so I took it, and it turns out it was a great fit for me, just for my personality and for my lifestyle, and the rest is history. I love that. Yeah. You're probably the first person ever to equate being a rebel to economics. Like I said, but, I definitely have that nerdy side of me, which I embrace. It's super exciting to have a CFO on the show. And yeah, check in particular, especially as you raise money and things, it, it devolves heavily into a numbers game, right? Numbers become super central to how the board and C-level oh, yeah. think about businesses. And to some extent, I think sometimes people forget about how their business actually grew there because it becomes super number focused. And one of the things I think is important to stop that occurring, because it eventually will slow growth down, is that you need to build really strong relationships. And I know it's something that you've done really well and that collaboration is something that you're really proud of. How do you as a CFO build strong relationships amongst the other teams when you are effectively the holder of numbers and the source of truth? Yeah, luckily, I'd like to think it comes very naturally to me. And it was definitely something I think that people call out for me in particular, and that's where I'm probably not the, the normal CFOs, <laughs> the normal CFOs. And I know what they mean by that. Most people, early, all of us early in our careers, were, there's usually two paths. There's either the FP&A paths, maybe three, FP&A paths, investment banking path, and, or the accounting path up to CFO. You, those are the, the normal, normally the three. And every one of those, most of your career, you're just like knee deep in a spreadsheet. You're just like looking at it. And so the chance to really develop uh, those interpersonal skills um, are, don't always show themselves. So for I think for me, it just comes naturally. But also, I think like in a lot of my decisions in life, I don't take just the normal path. I've definitely carved my own. And I think CFO position is no different. I took it as a challenge of like, how can I continue to be, you know, collaborative with people, but also hold some boundaries. And especially nowadays, I'm often saying no. And so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a fine balance. I think boundaries come in play. And I think the rest of it is really just communication of how I'm thinking about things and why I'm thinking about things. And also expectations from, for example, if, if I'm saying no to a headcount, why I'm saying no to it and what do I expect from the business? Maybe I haven't got the right rationale. Maybe they haven't really proved their case or maybe it's the wrong rationale, things like that, just explaining why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that goes a long way, building trust. That's true. Obviously, economic downturn is, you know, impacting every B2B SaaS company. How much has your role changed in the last 12 to 18 months? It's changed a lot. And I think it's not just my role. I think it's everybody's role in a growth at all costs mindset. As we all know, it was really fun. Didn't we have fun? It was like a really fun oh, yeah. time. And so my events thing, I almost felt like at times I was being told, don't stop the growth, Elka. Keep things going. And there was a lot of focus, I would say, just only on the top line metrics. That and, and it was interesting. Part of my role was going into capacity models and being like, we're not hiring fast enough, guys. We need to move faster because the numbers won't, we won't be able to get to where we need to go. We need to actually maybe invest more in marketing. So that was, you know, my, my role for a long time. And I think it, first of all, it shifted, first of all, when we were acquired by Vista, which we can talk about. So there was that shift. 
but yes, I would say the recent sort of downturn, um, things moved very fast, as we know, back in 2022. And um, all of a sudden, it was a lot more about the bottom line. Growth hasn't gone away completely, but especially as growth has slowed. Um, and as we see in the public markets, profitability matters a lot. And then the mix of offline growth, profitability, rule of X matters a ton and is highly correlated to valuation. And since we're all, that's really what we're all here to do, I, that's mm-hmm. something I have to remind people, we're really here to give our shareholders um, a good return on the money that they've invested. Um, we've had to shift into that mindset. And it's also interesting because uh, I, we, we realized majority of our employee base and even a large, a decent amount of the executive team had never really been through a downturn. And if they had, including myself, I was much more junior. And navigating that uh, has been interesting. So in terms of my role, like getting people to refocus on what this new environment is like, educating people as well, and frankly, asking for help when needed. So the board has been really instrumental in helping Mm -hmm. us with Scott, nine plus companies. And so they're learning and they have knowledge base from across the portfolio. So that's been also super helpful. And what are the scaling challenges that you see, Elka, not just within yeah. your business, but with the broader, you mentioned Vista and their portfolio companies, or just generally speaking, what are some of the challenges that you're noticing? The biggest challenge is how to grow efficiently. SaaS is a, a fairly new industry, right? It's really, mm-hmm. it was after Andreessen's big manifesto that they did, it was like 20, you know, yeah. a little over 10 years old. And, and we didn't have to really worry. SAS wasn't really concerned about profitability. As long as you were growing on the top line and you had a large TAM, like you were good. And so now it's about growing efficiently and growing profitably. And not many companies have a path to that. And if they do, it's usually two years out or, or something like that. So I think it's just a completely new paradigm. Of, and like I said, a lot, a lot, not only has industry not had to deal with it, but a lot of us as exec teams, like mm-hmm. for us, I feel very fortunate because we've actually will be profitable this year. And that puts us, I think, in now on the new class of SaaS companies, because there's not many and we'll be strongly profitable. Mm-hmm. And so we were already on that path because of Vista. We just had to pull the levers a little bit more quickly yeah. and slow down some of the really accelerating investment that we had as well. It's funny. The world has finally turned to the way I've always run businesses. Uh, we were profitable forever. Probably missed the boat the other way and didn't invest heavy enough to go faster and lose loads of money. I just, it's a, I think it's a weird trade of people coming out of the ANZ market. I find it difficult to lose money, to have some well, money coming in. That's but, amazing. I, I still hope that you'll take, you'll take a moment to appreciate yourself about that because there's a lot of companies in really tough positions right now. And there are a few gems that did operate the way you're operating. And I think they're in a pretty good position. So I think the financial discipline it gives you means that a lot of lessons that everyone else is learning worth them because you built your whole business yeah. that way. And we still tried the other way too, scale at all costs and massively increase headcount. And the way we think about business didn't help us actually succeed in putting a thousand yeah. people on at a time. This cycle that we're in now from a SaaS perspective, to me, makes a lot more sense because what we're going to find is there's going to be a lot of 100-year businesses built now that actually are sustainable, built, well-structured yeah. businesses that 
will have fundamental changes to the environment and to the world because they're going to pivot and adapt as the world changes and keep producing really good pieces of software. Um, so I'm actually excited about this scenario. I don't, I don't know if every investor is excited about this new scenario that we're in, but I like it. I think it's- love the, I love the theory about the 100-year businesses. I can see why that that would happen, when especially if you're mm. preserving some capital, you could take some educated, mm. interesting risks along the way as the industry continues to change um, versus always going out and having to you know get more capital to do it. I think you'll be in a pretty good position. I love that you said risk because it leads you to one of my favorite questions, which people hate. I think the sum of growth and driving successful software businesses is the list of all the mistakes you've made and then how you've overcome them. And that drives forward you, your ability to be successful. It's, it isn't a linear path of, I just did these five things and now I got successful. You do make mistakes and they're generally the things we don't talk about a huge amount. They're, they're probably not the first thing that strikes to your mind either, but can you think of a couple of things that, that you've seen over your career where you had to go at something or the business had to go at something and didn't quite work yeah. out and it helped you move down the path that Gainsight's yeah. on now or you're on now? Yeah. Yeah. When I first joined, we bought a company and it's a great company, really aligned with where we wanted the company to go to. Small. It was a small acquisition. It was a token acquisition. And we had some pretty aggressive projections against it, especially for the first year. And I think we made like 50% of sort of those sort of projections. And so I think we learned, a, we learned a ton from that first acquisition. First of all, don't be so aggressive in your first year to the board in particular. It takes time to integrate, even when they're small acquisitions. It's like the same amount of time as sort of often as a larger or more complex one. So I think it takes time to integrate. We're fortunate enough to have a great brand. And I think we relied probably too much on our brand in terms of, okay, since everyone knows us and customer success, they will certainly buy this other product. And instead, I think what we learned is that we really had to educate the market of why this product and why the combination made sense. And so I think those were like, those were two things that um, I think were big learning curves you know, for us. And it would be a while before we would do our next one. I think it took us over three years before we would do the second one. And so we had a couple sort of stumbling blocks to it with the first one. That's how you learn sometimes. That's how you learn. So, Love and learn. Love and learn. Yeah. Hey, I'll ask the question on the other side. So then what's been some of your most rewarding moments to date, especially in gain side? To come off hand, I think, first of all, getting to that 100 million ARR number, I think, yeah. It was huge. I started the company, I think we we're about 50 million ARR. So I think that's, uh, I think getting to 100 million sort of means, okay, we arrived, we're a great product, people are noticing. And it's just, it's like a mental sort of just check the box, mm-hmm. I think, which was, which was great. But honestly, I think the proudest moment was when we were um, acquired by Vista. And it was at that time, now, now there are a lot of people that were, kind of a billion dollar valuations, but at the time it was still, mm-hmm. which is interesting because it was December, 2020, it wasn't so long ago, but at the time it was still, it was such a great achievement. This does a great partner, but actually the proudest moment was, I remember when Nick, our CEO stood up and talked about the deal for the whole company. And he said, the most important reason that this deal matters so much is that we just proved to the world that you can win in business by being human first. And when he said that, I was like, wow, this is so much bigger 
the customer success. So much bigger than this one deal that we had proven a different sort of culture, but maybe a different way to do business. And so I think that was actually my proudest moment. That's awesome. Hey, so we both are really big on that. And I know Nick speaks really highly of you. And you also mentioned you're not a typical CFO. So what does a human first or a people-centric approach truly mean? And what have you learned from your experience and the culture you guys are developing at Gainsight? First of all, credit goes to Nick. He, over a decade ago, created this concept and lives by it through and through. Mm. Sometimes I get the question, what's Nick really like? And for, I said, no, 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 he is, he is that way. And he is definitely a very popular person. I was actually at a women's conference. And I told him afterwards, I said, I just want you to know the most popular person in the room was you. Because I had so many people coming to me and saying, oh, I know Nick. And we have a good laugh about that. So he's very, I call him beloved. He's very beloved in the valleys. It helps when you have a CEO like that. And who over the years has even for me shown just great compassion in, in different moments, both to work and personal as well, if there was something started going on. I think the unique challenge for me was, as I got into the role, is what's a human first CFO and what does that look like and what does that really mean? And so I, I took it as a challenge and it definitely felt like it fit. And I think what it's really, and then of course, then the economy changed very quickly. I was like three months into the job and the economy changed very quickly. Uh, and first of all, Nick and I was talk about it. And I think where I landed with it was a lot of education because I, I first of all saw, we both saw that we had a huge employee base that had never really been through a downturn in general and communication. I really focused on those sort of two things. So what that meant was um, I started something called CFO office hours, where I would actually, which was open to the entire company and we report it. Um, and people are able to come and ask me questions. And sometimes they're easy on me and more often they're not. And we just, and we just talk about it. And I'm fairly transparent in terms of like how I'm thinking about things and how we're thinking about things and how things are going. And it's been a fun, it's been like a fun experience. I, lately, I've decided, I've decided to like actually invite the guest as well and another exec member. And that's also been the fun play as we talk. I also started a newsletter. I'm a little overdue right. for my next edition that I call The Alchemist. And there I really use it as a way to be like, hey, I'm talking to investors. This is what's going on. This is, I'm reading reports. This is what's going on in the economy. This is what it means. I keep it light. I usually also share like a personal story as well. And I'd love to highlight a gangster and talk about their journey. And it was, it's interesting. I, I'm a little late about uh, the, the recent one. And apparently it's been mentioned that Alka has for Alchemist recently. So I was like, oh, okay. People are reading. Okay. Good to know. So they notice when it's a little bit late. And that I also learned from Nick. Nick does one that's much more frequent weekly, but it was a little different coming from the CFO. So I made it my own. And so I think that those sort of measures of what I've heard, the feedback is that it's meant a lot to people, particularly in a very uncertain time. Mm. And I tried to keep those up. I tried to see, continue to stay approachable. And yet also, by the way, I make the hard decisions. And when I make them, I explain why we're making them, why we have to reduce expenses, why we aren't, aren't able to aggressively promote maybe like the way we used to. 
And I think just explaining those decisions goes a long way too. Yeah. CFO often get labeled rightly, wrongly, mostly wrongly as the bad guy in the business, right? Like the chief firing as the bad guy, the the chief firing officer (laughs) or something along those lines. Because I think- Oh, you believe it too. It's okay. (laughs) The the, the question I was leading to there is that other than the CEO, you're probably the only other exec who has a wider picture of things, right? So is it difficult to then hold back and not be fully transparent, even in your newsletter or your open door policy? Because someone like me, I had a good view. I sat in exec calls and board meetings, but I still was very sheltered and I'd be very optimistic about talking to customers and selling and everything else. Whereas you are dealing with, much like CEO, worse of the problems. So how do you navigate that? That's a good one. And we definitely are on the side of transparency. I, I would say, even if there are problems, we, we are on the side of, let's just talk about them. But providing that context is important. So in general, we have not shied away, I would say, from the hard topics and like the, the, the problems per se. In fact, in addition to my own efforts, we have Ask Me Anything, where all the execs go and we will answer all the questions and, and people don't hold back. You can also ask anonymous questions, but more often than not, people will just go on um, and ask us the hard questions. Sometimes we have to discuss it to just make sure we're all aligned. But I'm trying to think of a time when we said, oh, we're not going to discuss this. And, and this is, by the way, I would say, again, this is a, a, one of my learning lessons from Nick that I've learned because... I, I probably would err on the side of a lot less transparency in general, but I've watched as he's navigated. I understand the wisdom in it. And it's, it's, if, if we're, now there's certain things that are, of course, that are just confidential that you know, we can't discuss, but let's talk about the problems because by the way, someone might have an answer and it, it might be someone on the front lines and it's not VP or an mm. SVP and let's talk about it. And maybe at the end of the day, We'll, we'll have to agree to disagree, but at least it's better than keeping it hidden. So I think it's a sign of a good culture that you can do, ask me anything and actually just talk about every question. You guys, yeah. you did it smarter than we did back in the day. At least you guys didn't do it live. And so you could actually make sure you're on the same page Whereas we did it live. Well, actually, probably. we do it live, but we, no. what we do, what no. we do is we're not live with the employees and we're, we use Slack. And then uh-huh. we're all in the Zoom room. And so are we like able to talk about it? But we did do a live recent. We did do a live recently because we were hearing that people needed it. Mm, and so yeah. we just decided to all get on. And it's fine. Yeah. It, it uh, was fine. But yeah, I it's love a little it. bit all in a Zoom room and over, over Slack. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. I think it's one of my favorite things. I love doing it live because you never knew what you were going to get asked and you just had to deal <laughs> with it. Yeah. Like, well, we tried the Slack channel too, right? Yeah. Like, but the live is so much better. Yeah. It's yeah. lively and fiery. And it's super hard to not I... be transparent, right? How can yeah. you not be transparent? They ask you live, you can't, you, you've got to make sure your face is blank, otherwise everyone knows what you really think about it. This is where I learn a lot from Nick, and this is the one point where we have a lot of similarities, but he's probably like you, Sean, and I'm like the typical planner where I'm just like, I've got my next three months planned out. And I'm like, you can't add that to my calendar. And, and so I learned. He's taught me to go more on the fly and I, my growth edge as well. Love it. Very nice. You talked about, I think, rowing in the same direction philosophy. All your exec team get in a room, you discuss things, blood on the wall, but you yeah. all got united. 
How has that changed since the investment and how has the team evolved in terms of communication strategies and your planning, your budget in particular? Yeah. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, definitely blood, definitely a lot of crying for sure. <laughs> it's interesting. I actually think we're even more aligned and I'll tell you why. With Vista, um, Vista is definitely in, involved in their investments. They're, I would say prior when, when we were venture owned, we would have our board meetings. Nick definitely would, you know, call on different venture partners, but for, for advice here and there. But really, I would only see them at the board meetings. And it was also very interesting because finance would usually come last. And sometimes they won't even get to us. I'm like, oh, that's fine. Things change a lot when we went to this stuff. First of all, now finance come up, comes up front at every board meeting. But we have regular meetings with Vista. Nick meets with Vista weekly. Every other week, the entire executive team joins. And the other exec that they meet with weekly is CFO. And since we are meeting with them regularly, and it's and we're usually talking about different strategic topics on the CEO call, CFO calls, and we're like just a regular sort of update. I, we needed to align, actually, even more. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just, the onus wasn't just on Nick to know all, every corner of the business. It was on me as well. And so I actually think because of this stuff, we all started meeting more and like especially these days we have planning season we used to just have exec calls on monday for an hour or two and now we're meeting several days a week um making sure we're all aligned which actually think works a lot better um even if it's, it's if it's a short call uh i i think it's a positive for me it's a positive thing now i'm a little biased because this that are all finance people and so i we find that we think very much alike it might other people might say sort of different things, but um, it definitely got our company to focus more on the numbers, which of course was great for me. Much more emphasis on finding out for the PL. Again, great for me because I wasn't having to convince people. And we just tend to think very similarly. And of course, they've been very yeah. supportive of, of me and my career. And so I'm grateful in that way too. We're all Enneagram's fives, apparently, that between we're all Enneagram fives. Yes. That's what you said. Look, I'm a big fan of my, our exec team met almost every day, even if it was only for 10 minutes. Yeah, like great. Alignment comes from time that you spend. We talk yeah. about difficult things. You bring up the stuff that you don't want to talk about, the things that aren't working. And then as a team, you work out how to fix it. And then everyone's responsible, right? Then no one can be like, Ricky failed exactly. to hit this number. Yeah, everybody knows yeah, most bodies are buried. And so as they do it, we're all yeah. together. Yeah. Okay, I want to pick your brain. You said you're deep into planning. How does one plan for 2024? Because so much is yeah. unknown. Like, I don't think we've got, because we passed this COVID climate, but we're in this like new, whatever this is. I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah. How does one go about doing that? I think whatever this is, is a good description of this environment. Yeah. And honestly, it changes day by day. And so I was just having a conversation with the team that we were down one path. And frankly, let's not go down this path, but even the geopolitical climate is changing day by day. And that will have certainly an effect on the economy and it remains to be seen which way. Um, the Fed has definitely signaled to the US that they're not done increasing rates. And so there's that piece. And on the one hand, I definitely see companies, it feels like we're turning a bottom and I can definitely, uh, we just finished our quarter yesterday and, and it was a good quarter. 
it was better than we had expected. And I am hearing that. The other hand, people are not ruling out recession. And then we've got this geopolitical climate that we're all trying to just see what's actually going to happen. Um, it is tough to navigate. Look, I think we're back to, as you said, we're past COVID and stuff. And yet I'm back to what we did during COVID, which is scenario, like doing various scenarios. Mm-hmm. And so that's the best way to manage a situation with uncertainty is really looking at what's your base case. And really, sure, we can do a high case, but I'm like, what's the base case and what's the low case? Because I, I want to make sure, especially as interest rates are going up, we have debt, for example, um, just understanding like where we are, not just with the P&L, but also just with cash. Um, and we're generating cash, which is great, but cost is also going up. And mm. so just understanding those dynamics as well. We are planning to be optimistic for 2024, just because that's what we're seeing in Q3 and, and Q4 for us, that at least our business is, is turning a bit, but we'll be doing scenarios. And particularly, I think when it comes to cash, I'm looking at the low case scenario and making sure mm. we're okay there. Mm. Um, so that's how we tend to deal with it because yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of factors. And then I think once we actually settle on the plan, um, it's just a matter of really reviewing it very regularly, sometimes weekly. Sometimes yeah. definitely in 2022, it was like every week. I remember September and October, things were changing so fast. I remember having a conversation with the executive team going saying, I'm not screwing with you guys. If I say yes on Monday and no on Friday, it's because okay. it's making that fast. And so that's just the way it's going. It's going. And it's just keeping our eye on the ball. Yeah. But got to be yes on Monday, execute by Tuesday. Otherwise, I might take it off you by Friday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Do that yeah. quick, shame on me, but um, or not, you get right back in there. I think that's super good advice. There's lots of years where cash wasn't as important, and now you got to understand where it is. Because if you want the power to shift, pivot, move, whatever fancy word you want to use, understanding where your cash sits will give you the power to be able to do. That. And adding that into what you're planning and the way you're thinking about the business moving forward, I think it's super important. Yeah, and of course, we're private equity owned. Most of the portfolio has a lot of debt. And so what yeah. happened last year and was in the last year, 12 months, was where a lot of people were caught off guard because all of a sudden rates were increasing mm. so fast and they had to move. And so we were luckily not in that position, but it's something that I'm just watching like a hawk mm. and making sure that we're aligned, not just that Nick and I are aligned, but like also with our investors and that we have a strategy in place. Mm. Yeah, got to be cautious. Then on the flip side, what are you excited about? What's coming up for Gainsight, Alka, and yourself in the next 12 yeah. months? We did an acquisition about a couple months ago. That's now like our third. And so we're in the middle of integrating that. And it's a customer education product. And there's been really good reception. And so I'm excited about like ramping that up. And so we are now, We it's not just we're a customer success company anymore. We're really looking at filling like the whole post-sales journey. Our role is you onboard a customer and eventually you will offboard a customer. Let's own that entire mm. chain. And no one's really doing that. And the data that can come from that is super interesting as well. And so I'm excited about continuing that. There's a lot of really interesting opportunities around AI that we're going to be announcing soon as well. And just our early responses from customers are, they're pretty excited about it. And we're optimistic about growth again as well. And yeah, it's been, it's been a rough, I would say, 18 months. And I'm sure we all are, are excited about getting to a place of us growing again. 
um, et cetera. And I'm like, I'm super excited about that. Um, and of course, I'm always excited about continuing the human first journey and, and seeing how that can continues to evolve as well. Awesome. Looking forward to what's to come then. It sounds very exciting. Let's move to quick fire round, Alka. We, okay. Every guest that hops on, we ask the same questions. You only get one one answer, so you can't go back and change or anything. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. This is pretty intense. Yeah. Most um, people just rewind to the end and listen to this couple of years. After a CFO, this yeah. is like really intense. That's it. Favorite sports team? Warriors, Bay Area Girl. Yeah, of course. Favorite yeah. player? Favorite player? No, now we're getting a little too technical. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I have a favorite player. Yeah. If you don't say Steph Curry, then he's going to cry because it's his favorite player. <laughs> yeah, okay. Steph Curry. Steph Curry. I love Isha That's also his favorite player, so it's also fine. <laughs> we're definitely going to see it in that part out. <laughs> I, I don't think that's appropriate. She's I'm, pretty also sure, I'm pretty sure I follow Isha Curry on Instagram and not Steph Curry. That's cool. Favorite music genre? 90s hip hop. Obviously, there's no other music. Yeah, I agree. Anyone who disagrees is this guy. Anyone want to disagree here? <laughs> yeah, me. All right. If you want to edit something out, we'll edit that out and change it to something okay. better. Oh, man. We click in all the data sets. So once we actually get to the end of the year, we'll be like, hey, all the guys oh. that have hopped on, 99%, their favorite music is hip hop. Um, yeah. If you're in tech, you must like hip hop. It's like some sort of cult thing down here. <laughs> That's it. In order to be successful in SaaS, yeah. B2B, tech, you got to well, love Actually, maybe we should actually do a report. Be like, hey, if you want to be successful in SaaS, these are the keys, right? <laughs> you have to love basketball. You have to love hip hop. This is, this. And you yeah, must be going to Iceland. To the prerequisites. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to Iceland this year? If you're not, you're not successful in tech. Uh, Anything else people are going That's <laughs> favorite drink. Yeah, mine's really boring. Mine's like Diet Coke. Sorry, guys. It's not yeah, anything. That's, that's, anything that's, that's a very CFO that's, type. That's, <laughs> it's like so, it's, yeah, it's very not fun. Yeah, it's very, but sometimes that CFO part of me comes out. I for sure. <laughs> I know you, you wanted like Old Island iced tea. Yeah. You wanted something huh? like wild and fun. Yeah. These are gone. Well, you were kind yeah. of boarding up, right? I was going to well, put you in yeah. chief fun office at camp. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you brought it down to Diet Coke. I had to I mean, sign that. I have to be less fun when I got to the for sure. You threw the word rebel and edgy out a lot to end on Diet Coke. That was, that was yeah. play. Totally. Yeah. What about favorite place to visit? I went there recently. I love Big Sur. I don't, if you ever have a chance to go, it's all, it's all the coastline down here. So I'm a big traveler. I've traveled 50 countries. Um, it's slowed down after COVID, but yeah. I, I love Big Sur. I love to go there. I just went there. There's a great kind of retreat house called Esalon Institute. And it's just a great, but there's no cell service. And it was just great. Yeah, it was just, a, yeah. it was just a, in the woods also, and, but it's but on the coast. And so it was just, it's a great place to just really drop out a silicon yeah. valley when you need it. Nice. And it's had the fun, hippy-dippy spiritual stuff that I like to do too. So it's, yeah, it's a great place. Nice. Sounds like Byron Bay, mate. Just, yeah, yeah. Just oh, I, I, what is that well, place? Like, you, look at Byron Bay in Australia. Yeah. That's like that's where all the Hollywood Byron stars Bay. go to. And Byron yeah. Bay, yeah, B Y R O N. That's where. Okay. It, that's yeah. like Sean I, and all this. Still on yeah. my list. I can't believe I have not been there. Why? Well, come to New Zealand first, and if you have a bit of time, get over there. I know. No, I yeah. want to go to New Zealand. Yeah. I actually yeah. really do. I actually but, agree. Yeah. Get New Zealand first. It's always better to get disappointment out of it. So Ricky, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. you're in Australia. Kiwi, Australia. Yeah. Yeah. I need a month yeah. to go on both. Yeah. Wow. Whenever Watch you're all. ready, we, we're here to yeah. welcome you. 
That's right. You come whenever. We'll take your hand. Yeah. Like we always say, New Zealand's just the bit yeah. that broke off Australia and flowed a little bit to the whatever side of that. That's, that's yeah. funny. It's, it's, all of our stuff's going to get edited out. So say yeah. as much as you are, mate. Yeah. <laughs> it always does. Our things end up with me saying like three things because that's the only inappropriate things I said. <laughs> all this gets cut out. I know. Um, it's uh, been a lot more fun. We yeah. talked about metrics instead. Absolutely. And this is the main one. Okay. You cannot get this wrong. You cannot. Okay. You just can't. This, this is the this, pressure this, one. Yeah. Okay. How do you like yours? Crunchy? Oh, or smooth? yeah. This is stressful. Yeah. I really feel like you should have prepared me for this one beforehand. <laughs> Definitely crunchy. I don't Definitely trust crunchy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you guys you're are smooth people, science. then sorry. We're done. Yeah, I'm with you. That's all right. There's something wrong if you're picking like smooth peanut butter. I'm like, why have peanut butter at all? Yeah. Just have butter. It's like, I thought what you were going to ask me is pineapple on pizza because yep. that's really the tense question. That has like, <laughs> oh, it has literally that, almost caused a yeah. riot at work. Do you, are you a pineapple person or not? Like literally every time we talk about it. As long oh. as I'm getting pizza, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm easy yeah, in place. Yeah. Yeah. No, but pineapple? Yeah, it yeah. is. It is a. It's a strong. It's a, it's a touchy subject. It's no. It's a touchy I'm, subject. Ricky, are you pineapple? Yeah. Oh, I'm not pineapple. Okay, oh, yeah. just make no. it. Pineapple on pizza. I'm okay with no pineapple okay. on pizza. I'm oh okay God. as long as I get pizza. Just, you just don't you say that. If I'm being said, I'm happy. Yeah. Use <laughs> your intel for once. Yeah. yeah. Other than unless it's going to be like a full vegetable sauce, I'll, I'll leave the vegetable sauce. Yeah. If I'm getting fed, I'm happy. I'll eat it. Thanks for coming on the show, Arka. This has been great fun and thank you for your wisdom and thank you for all your great answers to the the quick fire round. Thanks for having me. And this CFO had a lot of fun too. So thank you.